Hi, this is Jamie Escudere, and welcome to another episode of Nonsense. Let's talk some more about judges. Now, I know I said on Facebook that I was actually going to be making a podcast about death, and I am doing that. That's in the works. But I read something yesterday in the paper that was a little bit disturbing, actually quite disturbing, and so I actually felt that maybe I should stop for death for a while, or ask it to kindly stop for me at least, because uh, we have something a little bit more pressing. At least I hope so. <laughs> Um, And that is the impending collapse of the judiciary. And I say that because yesterday, Mr. Trump and Mr. McConnell held a surprise news conference in which they unveiled their desire or agenda to essentially pack the federal courts with conservative justices. And that would be a disaster. And I want to explain that some more. Let's go back to middle school. And we know that there are three branches in government. There's the legislative branch, whose job it is to make the laws. There's the executive branch, whose job it is to execute the laws. And then there's the judicial branch, whose job it is to interpret the laws. Why do we need a judiciary at all to do this role of interpreting the law? Let me give you an example. This is a true true example if a little bit disturbing, but I think I'm going to choose this as an example of why we need a judiciary and what it means to interpret laws. So let's say Congress passes a law and it says this, you can't kill people. You can't kill people. Thou shalt not kill. That's the entire text of the law. And the executive understands that to mean if someone kills someone, I have to arrest them and then prosecute them. Now, let's say you have a crazy person, and this actually is a true story, you'll find the link in my show notes, who decides that he's going to commit suicide by climbing under an elevator, tying a noose around his neck, and attaching the other end of the noose to the top of the elevator, so that the very next person who gets into the elevator, when they push the button, let's say they live on the 10th floor, they push the button for the 10th floor and the elevator starts to rise, the actual effect of that will be to kill the person. And that's what happens. And in swoop the police and arrest the button pusher. And they go to court. And the prosecutor says, the law is you can't kill. And this person killed. But for the fact that she had pushed the button, if she hadn't pushed the button, the guy would still be alive. But she pushed the button, and it's only because of that that the person is dead. Therefore, she's guilty of murder. Well, that's when we need a judge to step in and interpret that and say, well, no, actually... The legislature didn't say it in the law, but I am finding, I am reading in, I am interpreting into the crime of murder intent, that it's impossible to commit a murder unless you intend to commit a murder. And this woman or this person who climbed into the elevator, her intent was not to kill anybody. It was merely to go home, to get to the 10th floor where she lives. Therefore, she's not guilty of murder. So that is an example of a court interpreting a law that the the executive is trying to execute. Now, there are obviously thousands of laws that we look to or expect courts to enforce, but the most important ones are the ones that are contained in the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is a very short document. You can read it in under probably five minutes, all 10 rights. They don't contain a lot of words, which means there's lots in there that's open to interpretation, and there's lots in there that the extent to which we actually have those rights or the scope of those rights is going to be left to who to decide? To the judiciary. And so if you're going to pack the court, 
the courts with conservative judges, you risk having your rights curtailed because one of, and this is, this is based upon my own experience, call it anecdotal evidence of, I don't know, thousands of criminal cases that I've actually physically participated in or watched in court. Here is sort of the judicial philosophy of conservative judges. You ready? It's a two-word philosophy. Government wins. That's it. In the battle between, or in the balance, maybe battle's not the right word, in the balance, in the tension, in the conflict between having to decide between the individual and the government. And what's another way of saying that? In the murky area of deciding what rights against their government people actually have, the conservative response is government wins. And this is really ironic and sad, frankly, for conservatives who hate, or at least profess to hate, big government. Because there is no such thing that's worse than big government than a government who does not recognize your rights. And I would remind, I want to remind everyone that federal judge appointments are lifetime appointments. It's common for people who become federal judges to remain federal judges for 20, 30 years, for generations. And already before Mr. Trump makes these appointments, we already have a, a hyper ultra conservative judiciary. And so I thought what, we, what I would do is, why don't we take a look at how well the judiciary is already protecting our rights? These examples that I'm giving actually come from cases. This is not some futuristic America that I'm afraid will happen. This is the reality of the law already, as it is in our country today. And I'm going to do this by going through a hypothetical. Let's say that you're black. Now, I may have already lost some of you by saying that because you're not black. I want to take a little bit of an aside and talk about a guy named John Rawls, who was a philosopher, and he said, let's imagine that you have the power to construct a society, and there are, there are really only three rules. First rule is, you have absolute power to construct this society however you see fit. However, the second rule is, you have to know that you are going to be born into this society. So whatever society that you set up you have to know that you are going to have to participate in it and you are going to be subjected to it. And the third rule is you are not allowed to know what condition you would take or what form you will take in this new society. So you can't assume that you're going to be born a white Christian male. You might be born a poor black schizophrenic lesbian in this society. And so your obligation or your task is to design a society that functions perfectly not only for a certain group of people, but for all groups of people. And he called this third condition, the condition that you don't know how you're going to be born into this society, whether you're going to be male or female, gay or straight, tall or short. He called that the veil of ignorance. So construct a society while following the requirement of a veil of ignorance. And why I think that's important is because when I say, imagine that you're black, we want America, at least in theory, to function for everyone, not just white people. Uh, not just Christians, not just men. And America is kind of constructed that way, which means the interpretations of these rights as they apply to black people are also going to be applied to you, even if you're not a black person. And I'm going to end this podcast with a warning about that. Okay, so let's pretend for this thought experiment that you're black and that you're poor. And let's say you've got a friend who is of Mexican descent who is also poor, 
who works for a lawn service and who you're supposed to pick up one day. And when you pick him up, you pick him up and a bunch of his friends, and they're all like really dirty from their work. You're in Odessa, Texas, it's hot, and they're just, they've had it. They're tired of working hard and not making any money. So your friend says to you, let's go rob a convenience store. And you say, okay. And so you drive your friend and the group over to the convenience store, thinking that he's just going to rob it. Not knowing that he has a gun, but he does. And he goes in there and he kills someone. Then he comes out and he says, drive, drive away. And you do. And you're stopped by the border patrol. Now, when you're stopped, you're in, as I said, Odessa, Texas which is in fact about 200 miles from the border. Let's assume that the border patrol agents know nothing about the murder that that just happened, that you're not committing any traffic violations, but just that they see some Mexicans in the car, a group of Mexicans in the car. They appear to be dirty and they think that's suspicious. So they pull you over. They pull you out of the car and they ask you whether you know anything about the gun that they just found in the floorboard by your friend. And you know you have the right to remain silent, and so you don't say anything, you simply shrug. They arrest you, and then they tie you to, the, to your friend who committed the murder, and next thing you know, you're charged with murder, and the state is seeking the death penalty. Let's go through all of the protections that are currently in place to keep you from being sentenced to death for something that someone else did. First, there's the Sixth Amendment, which is the amendment that gives you the right to a lawyer, even if you can't afford one. I'm going to talk about that more in a bit in the podcast, but let's just pretend that that one works just fine. So you get your lawyer right away. Your lawyer then asks the judge to look at the Fourth Amendment, which is the one that protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures. And the lawyer says this, Judge, this car should never have been stopped at the time that... It was stopped. My client was driving in an innocuous, safe, and lawful way. The Border Patrol had no idea about the police about the murder. They weren't even anywhere near the border. They merely pulled this car over because it was full of Mexicans who appeared to be unclean, and that's unreasonable. And the judge says, no, I think that's reasonable, which is, in fact, what the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal appellate court that oversees federal law in Texas, Louisiana and Mississippi said in the case of United States versus Cervantes. And I'm going to mention a few cases. You're going to find them in the show notes. I do have to be honest, at least one judge, it was a three judge panel in the Cervantes case, and at least one judge said no, that it wasn't reasonable. But the point is, he was overruled by two other judges. And of course, that's something that's just going to get worse when even more conservative judges take the bench. So that, you might think that that was an unreasonable search under the Fourth Amendment, but in fact, it wasn't. The next thing the lawyer says is, the state is going to try and use the fact that my client was silent with regard to whether or not he knew about the gun against him, and that's a violation of the Fifth Amendment, which says that you have the right not to incriminate yourself. And the judge says, no, I'm going to let them use that, which is essentially what the United States Supreme Court said in a case called Salinas versus Texas, which really has winnowed down, so you think you have the right to remain silent, right? The truth is, in the United States right now, that right doesn't exist unless you literally say at the moment the police officer starts to question you. You have to say this phrase, pursuant to the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution, I am invoking my right to remain silent. If you do anything other than that, including 
remaining silent, that can be used against you. All right, then your lawyer says, the state is seeking the death penalty in this case. It's cruel to seek the death penalty in a case where my client didn't even kill anybody. And the court says, no, I know that it says there's no cruel punishment allowed under the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, but I'm finding that it's not cruel. And if you have any doubts about whether that really is the reality, at least in Texas, you should ask a guy named Jeff Wood, who is currently on death row for a crime that he didn't commit. I would tell you that you should ask uh, Doyle Sklern, G.W. Green, Carlos Santana, Jesse Gutierrez, or Robert Thompson, but you can't ask any of them because they, in fact, were all executed by the state of Texas, even though none of them actually killed anybody. So that's the reality, right? We have protections against cruel punishment. We have protections against unreasonable searches. We have the right to remain silent. But the reality is people get killed, even though they haven't killed anybody. The reality is people get pulled over for looking wrong. And the reality is the right to remain silent doesn't actually include the right to remain silent. And as I say, that's the current state of things, even before McConnell and Trump try to pack the courts. It could get a lot worse. And I say that because the Bill of Rights doesn't contain a lot of words which means a lot of what's in there is open to interpretation. And a conservative judge who interprets these things through the conservative lens as government wins is not going to interpret them in a way that I think most people are going to like. What are some things that could easily be interpreted in a, in a way that's kind of tyrannical? Well, here's a phrase that appears in the Bill of Rights. Speedy trial. Now, what does speedy trial mean? If it's you or if it's a friend of yours who's awaiting trial, you think it means tomorrow, right? Well, a court could easily interpret that to mean a year. If you're not brought to trial within a year or five years or ten years, then you haven't gotten your speedy trial. Here's another one, excessive bail. What does excessive bail mean? Well, of course, if it's you, excessive bail is anything more than what you can afford. But a judge could easily find a million dollars, ten million dollars for nonviolent offenses. In fact, it's commonplace in federal court where I practice for people to be, who are charged with nonviolent offenses to be even denied bail outright. How about this? The Bill of Rights says that you have the right to have counsel. It doesn't say anywhere in the Bill of Rights that you have the right to free counsel. Now, that's the, the law as we live under it now, but that didn't happen until a court read that requirement into the Bill of Rights back in the 60s. So in other words, for almost 200 years, poor people didn't have a right to counsel. Well, they had a right to counsel, but they didn't get one unless they could afford one. And that could be undone. You could easily see a bunch of conservative judges getting on the Supreme Court and saying, I'm fiscally conservative. I think it's a waste to spend money like this. I'm no longer, I no longer find that the Constitution requires that poor people get lawyers. It doesn't even say anything about good lawyers. It just says that you have the right to counsel. Here's a true story. In 1997, a judge allowed testimony from an expert witness in a death sentencing case that black people are more violent than white people. Now, amazingly, that evidence was actually put on by the defense. So that's, an, that's, an, that's incredible. But in 1997, there's an expert out there who's willing to say it, a judge who's willing to allow it, and a jury who's, a willing, who's willing to buy it. The person was sentenced to death. That went all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. When it finally did get there, to their credit, six of the eight justices who heard it said, no, you know, that's just a bit racist, right? You can't, you can't allow that kind of testimony. But incredibly, two of the justices were willing to let that stand 
were willing to allow that testimony in that case, that two of the justices who are currently on the court were willing to allow that to go forward. Now we have Neil Gorsuch on the court. Who knows how he would have decided the case? It's possible that one-third of the, of the Supreme Court of the United States, as it sits right now, today, would have been okay with that testimony. Think about what might happen if Trump or McConnell were allowed to put just two more justices like that on the court, thus controlling the decisions of the court in a conservative way like that. That's the nightmare that I, I see on the horizon. A world, for example, where you have no privacy interest in your cell phone. Imagine that. Imagine you get pulled over for whatever reason, and the police demand that you hand over your cell phone and your password. Now, if you're someone who really doesn't care, and I'm, I'm really sick and tired of hearing this, I've got nothing to hide. I've got nothing to hide in my phone. I don't care if the police come in my bedroom and look through my closet and see what's in there. If you're someone like that who's, who is so uninteresting and boring that you don't even say remotely controversial things to even your closest intimates, then the truth is a country like America is wasted on you. It doesn't matter where you live. Go live in North Korea. Go live anywhere you want. If you don't care about just the police and the government just barging in, if you don't care about your privacy and your freedom at all, then you're right. It doesn't matter. This doesn't, none of this stuff matters. But if you're not one of those people, if you're someone who actually has a personality and maybe wants to keep some things that you might think or say private, then this stuff really does matter. So here's that warning that I mentioned at the beginning, and it comes from Alexander Hamilton. You can find this in Federalist 78. He says, No man can be sure that he may not be tomorrow the victim of a spirit of injustice by which he may be a gainer today. Now, you may be saying, you know what, this doesn't, this doesn't, ma this doesn't pertain to me. This has nothing to do with me. I'm not black. I'm not poor. I'm never going to need a lawyer. I'm never going to be asked for permission to search my cell phone. I'm never going to need a judge to set a reasonable bond. That's true until it isn't. So what to do? The only thing to do is to vote and to get as many people as you can to vote. In the most recent election, the presidential election, where you had a candidate on the ballot who was openly advocating for a wall and deporting people and was clearly racist and misogynist. Only 42.60% of the eligible voters in Texas went to the polls. Less than half. I've often heard that Texas is actually not a red state. It's a non-voting state. And it non-voted itself into a disastrous presidency. Now we already have the problem where Trump is going to try and make these nominations and probably get many of them through even before that next election. So already we're in a horrible mess. But to just continuously turn a blind eye to the importance of voting, because we don't understand maybe the, the essential role that the judiciary plays in deciding whether or not it's actually a bill of rights that we have or simply words on a page, now we do. Thanks. And thanks for listening.